This is Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi, two of the top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, one from California and one from Massachusetts, squaring off on legal news and legal observations. Lawyer to Lawyer is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the Legal Talk Network. We're glad you could listen today to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams from sunny Southern California. And this is Bob Ambrogi from Massachusetts. I write uh, a blog called Law Sites, another blog called Media Law, and also the Law.com Legal Blog Watch. Craig, I, last time I checked, you were writing a blog, too. Still am. It's called May It Please the Court, and uh, we cover legal issues, much like we're going to talk about today. Uh, this past Monday, the Supreme Court ruled in two patent cases, KSR International versus Teleflex, and Microsoft versus AT&T paving the way for what most people believe will be a flood of future patent law cases challenging patents. The uh, KSR International case uh, dealt with two rival manufacturers of, of adjustable gas pedals. Uh, the significance of the core of the decision uh, we will hear more about today, but essentially it comes down to uh, the court's ruling on uh, what constitutes obviousness uh, and uh, and uh, its interpretation of the standard that had been had been applied by the by the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals. Well, the other case, Microsoft versus AT and T, involved Microsoft's export of a master version of its Windows operating system. Court ruled in favor of Microsoft overturning a lower court decision, ruling that patent law does not apply to software sent into foreign countries. Today we'll discuss these decisions and talk to several experts about what they uh, portend for the future of patent law. With that, we'd like to introduce our first guest, Matthew Krieger. Matthew is a litigator in the San Francisco office of Morrison & Forster. He has expertise in patent litigation and patent interference matters, along with other intellectual property disputes. He served as lead or co-lead counsel in several patent interference cases, co-chair of the firm's patent interference practice group. Welcome to the show, Matthew Krieger. Thanks for having me. Our next guest is J. Matthew Buchanan. Matt Buchanan practices in the areas of intellectual property and FDA regulatory law for the firm Dunlop, Cotting, and Rogers in Oklahoma. He's registered to practice before the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office, and he is the founder and author of the blog Promote the Progress, a blog focused on worldwide intellectual property policy issues. Welcome to the show, Matt Buchanan. Thanks for having me, guys. And our next guest is Professor Joshua Sarnoff, Assistant Director of the Glushko Samuelson International Property Law Clinic and a practitioner in residence at Washington College of Law, American University, where he supervises law students in the practice of intellectual property law. He's a registered patent attorney, teaches patent law, and has been involved in a wide range of intellectual property and legal and, and policy disputes. Recently filed an amicus brief in the Supreme Court in the KSR Teflex case. Welcome to the show, Professor Sarnoff. Delighted to be here. Thanks for asking. Let's start ta about talking about these two particular patent law cases and how prevalent patent disputes are and may become in the future. Professor Sarnoff, let's let you lead off. Sure. Um, let me say that this case was really a very big deal. Um, rather than say it by myself, I'll actually quote one of the counsel for the defendants, and usually you don't promote what a big loss you've just had, um, but he says the practical consequence of the decision is huge on investors' existing patent relationships and the value of patent assets of all enterprises. So I think that, as you'll probably hear, the Supreme Court has made the law of obviousness more uncertain, although it's also 
made the bar to getting a patent much higher. Uh, and as a result, you have lots of issued patents that now are likely to have invalid claims, which will lead to more litigation. And there's already been a substantial increase in patent litigation over the last few years. So um, although I think the decision is ultimately very good for society, I would expect we will see a lot more patent litigation and a much higher burden to getting patents. Matthew Krieger, maybe you could just uh, give us a, a quick overview of, of what this case uh, said. Sure. So the background here is um, the Federal Circuit had for many years um, developed a doctrine that gave a, a real clear um, hurdle that one had to get over if you wanted to prove that a patent was obvious. And what it was was that you needed to establish, if, if, particularly in a case where the claim was that the prior art, two pieces of prior art, be combined to arrive at the invention. In such a circumstance, uh, someone who was challenging a patent had to find what was referred to as a teaching, a suggestion, or a motivation in the prior art to combine these two uh, prior ideas um, in, into the new invention. And that was it was applied more or less rigorously um, for many, many years. So it meant um, both when one was trying to obtain a patent, uh, if the patent examiner pushed back and said, no, this was obvious, uh, one could successfully argue with the patent examiner and say, no, there was no explicit suggestion in the prior art that these things should be combined, and that would carry the day and the patent would issue. And in litigation, what it meant was um, when someone challenged a patent as obvious, this was you know, a jury instruction that one could get. It was an argument one could make in uh, trying to achieve summary judgment that the patent was not obvious, and this was a very specific hurdle that, uh, that had a lot of power. And what the Supreme Court did in this case and I agree with Professor Sarnoff that the the, the exact contra, you know they didn't the, the Supreme Court was a little unclear on what the new standard should be, but what they were quite clear about was that this teaching suggestion motivation test is not the law, and the Federal Circuit was wrong to impose that test. And so that that hurdle is now gone, and it will make it much easier for folks to challenge patents as being obvious. Well, but didn't the court say that it had already told you they've already said what the standard should be? Isn't that kind of what they were saying in this decision? Sure, they they referred back to these gram factors. And uh, and there are another there are several other sort of snippets in the opinion that suggest the themes that that one can expect will apply, but but the gram factors are not very determinative. They're a series of factors, um, and and so this there will be a fair amount of uncertainty here. We know it's going to be easier to show a patent is obvious, but it's going to take several years to, in my view, to settle out exactly how that's going to play out. Matt Buchanan, how about you? What's your uh, uh, your take on this case? Yeah, I agree with everything said so far. Um, it's important to note that the uh, the Supreme Court seemed to take issue with the teaching suggestion motivation test in the sense that the Federal Circuit recently has kind of elevated it to this litmus test status, whereas if you couldn't find some sort of a, a teaching that everyone could see and grasp, then there was no way that you were going to show obviousness. Um, and that's really what they what they objected to. And in doing that, they said, guys, we've already told you what the law is. We did it back in the 60s, and in fact, it's, uh, it's the gram factors, as Matt mentioned. Uh, so now, everyone involved in the patent world has to kind of go back to where we used to be, which is the gram factors. Um, the TSM test had sort of become a shortcut to showing obviousness or failing to show obviousness in the courts, in the patent and trademark office, uh, and everywhere where patents are challenged. And now we've got to get into these more detailed uh, gram analysis, uh, as the court told us to do back in the 60s. This is Josh again. Uh, I actually think it's even more complicated than that. 
because although the Supreme Court has said you go back to the Graham factors, they've also expressly um, approved of some earlier decisions that really don't require much consideration of the Graham factors at all. These were the Anderson-Blackrock case and Socrita versus Agpro. In those cases, I'll use Socrita as an example, um, there was a combination of uh, using water to wash and using gravity uh, on a slope to move cow manure. And putting the two together was found not to be uh, an invent sufficiently inventive and in particular in Socrata, what they said was that if there was no new function involved in the combination, but only the um, pieces of the existing um, technology being put together to do the things they did before, that was enough to demonstrate obviousness without regard to motivation to combine at all. And I'm just going to quote some language from the case here. It says, Socrata and Anderson Blackrock are illustrative. A court must, emphasis on the word must, ask whether the improvement is more than the predictable use of prior art elements according to their established functions. If the answer to that is no, under Socrata, the, the question is over, and this is an obvious intention. So it's not clear how that reaffirmance of its old cases now relates to this new discussion of the more porous standards, but if you look at the first part of the opinion, it's an even more radical change to the law than people might have thought or focused on. I think there's a couple of hints in the opinion. That's one of them. The the and they sort of follow the theme of predictable results or unpredictable results of the combination. And the other theme of there is an explicit mention of teaching away. So these are some of the issues that come up in Graham. But the court has applied special emphasis to those idea of was there something about the combination that was unexpected or unpredictable that made the invention work in a way that you wouldn't have expected. And the other this teaching away concept was if there was something in the prior art that that suggested away from or taught away from this a combination. Those are two elements that the court placed special emphasis on. But, but I agree that um, um, the potential in the opinion here is, is that you will either see jury instructions or, or court rulings that will, that will give a shortcut to a finding of obviousness. So what is the, what is the impact of this ruling uh, both on uh, future patents and on existing patents? I think... Um... The impact is certainly huge. Um, on existing patents, when the, when the court issued the opinion, um, numerous patents in existence today uh, are probably invalid under, under this new law. Um, future patents, certainly it's easy to say that it's going to be harder to get, get patents in the future, but I think the effect is even bigger than that because I think companies uh, that have massive portfolios and maintain portfolios and file hundreds of applications each year I think they'll start to look at that practice a little bit differently, and they might change uh, the bar, their internal bar, as to what falls on the side of let's seek patent protection and what falls on the side of, well, let's keep it inside or let's uh, maintain a trade secret or let's just uh, go ahead and publish it uh, uh, somewhere else. Why do you think the Supreme Court's taken such an interest in patent cases lately and instilled so much flexibility where there used to be rigidity? Well, I, the, the, the theme here has been over the last few years, there have been a lot of patent cases, and almost universally the, the trend has been reversal of the federal circuit in a manner that limits patents or limits their, their value. Um, I think, and there's, in, this, in the oral argument on KSR, there was some discussion of this and some of the other recent cases that I think the Supreme Court is concerned about patent quality, about the patent office's ability to 
be a, a, a police on patent quality and uh, concern that innovation is actually being um, retarded by, by patents that, that are just garbage. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, Justice Kennedy alluded to the fact that, that the standard as having been applied by the federal circuit was, was, was hindering the progress rather than promoting the progress. I think he made right. reference to that. I was just going to say on the, on the impact of the opinion, I think, I mean, reexamination has got to be a huge issue here. The, the procedure is in place now to attack patents that have already been granted. Uh, given all the number of patents that, that got past obviousness challenges and, and under the wrong standard, I think those, those are just ripe for potential reexamination. I, I think we can expect to see a, a, a big uptick there. In addition, companies have to report the value of their assets, I think, and um, again, quoting one of the counsel for the defendants, the decision will affect trillions of dollars in investments. So it really is a big deal. Going back to the reasons um, for, you know, the Federal Circuit was an experiment of a single court to address a particular area, and I think the Supreme Court had, gave the experiment a lot of time to work and then decided it wasn't. And since at least the 2002 decision in Festo, I think they realized that there were significant problems not having appellate courts be able to talk to each other and, and have the cases filter up to them. So they have to get involved as they were heavily involved in the 19th century in managing patent law, and they're doing so. Well, so what does that suggest? I mean, does that suggest we're going to see a, a, an end to this to, to the appellate system as it now stands? Uh, not an end, but a, a revision of the appellate system as it now stands? Well, that would be something for Congress to decide. But if Congress doesn't expand appellate jurisdiction in patent law, I would expect the Supreme Court to stay actively involved. I mean, there was a, a, one, a, a post yesterday from Roger Parloff, who, who wrote Rights for Fortune as a lawyer himself, uh, which it, his headline was Supreme Court to Patent Appeals Court Dropped Dead. Uh, and, uh, and he said that uh, where the uh, Supreme Court had been giving wrist slaps before, it delivered a right cross to the jaw of the federal patent appeals court yeah. in this decision. It was gentler than their uh, oral he, argument. He, <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think in that sense, KSR really gives the federal circuit uh, an opportunity, maybe a second chance, if you will. Um, you know, the federal circuit was was intended to kind of bring some uniformity to our patent law uh, from the appellate level, and now we've got uh, a KSR decision that probably opens a lot of questions, and we need some some uniformity brought in on obviousness law, and we need to kind of feel out what everything what everything means now in light of KSR. And I think the federal circuit has the opportunity to do that right now, but. They could also go the other route and kind of lead into some more disarray, uh, and it'll be interesting. Interesting to see how that develops over the next couple of years. I think there are there are different industries that may be affected very differently by this decision. Um, certainly, the industries you know there's a whole slew of patents that basically are of the form of here's some some great idea that we've known about for years. Let's try to do it on the internet. Those kinds of patents I think are, are very vulnerable. Um, in general, the computer electronics and mechanical field where, this, where the results are more predictable, I think you'll see um, the decision having a bigger impact. Then in the life sciences, biotechnology, pharmaceutical realm, I think there will be, these patents will tend to be stronger and they will tend to be more immune to the, this decision because, the, because of the unpredictability of the field. That, and I agree. You know, the, the Supreme Court in the language, they talked about this concept of ordinary innovation and ordinary innovation should not be uh, subject to patent protection. And there's a lot of industries out there that the bulk of their patent portfolio 
is uh, made up of what I call incremental innovation. And I think incremental innovation is the same thing as ordinary. Um, but I think there's a lot of industries out there that have been getting by on building portfolios off of incremental innovations. And I don't go, I don't go first to the computer and Internet stuff, but I, I instead go to places like Detroit. Uh, if you look at any of the Detroit-based patent portfolios, they're very, very incremental innovations based on simple, old technologies in the mechanical field that are extremely predictable. Well, there, there was an interesting post uh, also in another blog yesterday which, which suggested that, that uh, and I think this is following up on, on what Professor Sarnoff might have alluded to, that, that there's a potential Sarbanes-Oxley implication to this decision insofar as this ruling may have a, a substantial impact on, on the value of certain companies with substantial uh, IP holdings. Now, I know you're all patent experts and not uh, maybe not corporate experts, but any thoughts on that? Consult with counsel. <laughs> it's got to be true, particularly for, for these patent holding companies uh, right. that have made a business out of, out of litigating the value of their patents. And disclose, disclose, disclose. You know, there's one other aspect of the decision, though, which hasn't gotten a lot of attention, but I think it's going to be very important, which is in Section 4 on page 23 of the opinion, it's a very short paragraph that deals with summary judgment standards. Now, for those of us who've litigated patents, obviousness was one of the hardest things one could ever get summary judgment on because you have this loosey-goosey gram factors. You have typically an expert on one side that says it's obvious, an expert on the other side that says it's not obvious, and it's a, just a classic case where judges will never pull the trigger, and you'd, and you'd have to try these cases to a jury. But what the court did in this case was quite, quite extraordinary. After, after they threw away the suggestion motivation teaching test, they then went on to um, apply the, just apply the law of obviousness themselves and decide that the patent was obvious. They didn't remand for fact-finding. And in this case, there were, there were battling experts on both sides of the question, and what they said was quite interesting. They said, in considering summary judgment, the district court should take into account expert testimony, but, not, but only on the subsidiary facts, not on the ultimate question of obviousness. And the three facts they identified were, if it's undisputed as to the level of ordinary skill in the art, the, the um, scope of the patent claim, and the content of the prior art, then a trial judge is supposed to make his or her own determination as to whether the patent is obvious. And I think that's just going to be, an, be extraordinarily useful to, to, to patent defendants who want to maintain that a claim is obvious. Because what this means is, unless there's a genuine dispute about what the claim means, what the prior art says, and what the level of skill in this field is, and those things are you know, quite often not subject to real dispute, the trial judge should just decide. And if the claim is obvious, then it's invalid, and there won't have to be a trial. I couldn't I agree, agree with you it. more. The opinion, of course, is still somewhat confusing um, in terms of whether they were really just affirming the summary judgment of obviousness or themselves making a separate determination or even remanding for further consideration since they did remand the case. But the important point is they're sending a signal, and the signal is because this is a legal issue, whatever those subsidiary facts are may not be material to the ultimate judgment. So you can have disputes as to what the experts say, but it doesn't, it's not material, the standard for summary judgment, because you still know it's going to be obvious. How do you still know it's obvious? You're applying the grant factors. And that's a legal determination, not a factual yeah. one. Exactly. And, and that's, it's particularly important because, if you recall, there was some question about this presumption of validity. A presumption of validity has to go to evidence, not to the legal conclusion. 
so um, again, what they're saying is, is you can have disputes about a lot of the facts here, and you'll still know that this is an obvious invention. That is a very strong signal to district courts, as well as to the patent office, that you can make these decisions of obviousness, even if there are factual disputes about some parts of the record. Well, it's time for us to take a short break. We return. We'll get final thoughts from our guests on these two new patent cases. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, Law Sites, are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Lawyer to Lawyer is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. Did you know that Legal Talk Network podcasts are also available as CLE? Visit Law.com's CLE Center at www.clecenter.com. That's CLECenter.com to enjoy listening and get CLE credit. Check out our Lawyer to Lawyer host blogs, J. Craig Williams' blog at mayhavepleasethecourt.com, likewise Robert Ambrogi's blog at LegalLine.com for daily legal observations, perspective, and, of course, a healthy dose of humor and wit. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We'd like to welcome back our guests, Matthew Krieger, litigator with the San Francisco office of Morrison and Forrester, J. Matthew Buchanan, a patent attorney with the firm Dunlop, Cotting, and Rogers in Oklahoma, and Professor Joshua D. Sarnoff, assistant director of the Glushko Samuelson Intellectual Property Law Clinic at Washington College of Law. And uh, I want to ask, uh, and Professor Sarnoff, let me let me start with you. There, there was another decision, uh, another patent law decision from the Supreme Court this week that we haven't really talked about yet. But uh, maybe you could tell us quickly what uh, what that case was about. There was a provision of the Patent Act that was adopted um, to deal with the situation where people shipped 
parts of a patented invention from the United States to a place overseas, which technically didn't constitute infringement because you didn't make it in the United States. Um, and what it said was, if you ship a component with the intent to induce its inf the infringement of the what would be an infringing article overseas, or if you ship something that's specially designed to be used in what would be an infringement, except that it's occurring overseas, that would constitute infringement. And it was a, a very big money case between Microsoft and AT&T over a um, speech codec uh, computer, um, which basically translated voice imagery um, into, your, uh, into the computer. And what was shipped from the United States was Windows, which had the software in it. So what the Supreme Court ultimately said was that shipping what are called golden master disks from the United States, the um, embodied software overseas isn't an act of infringement, and reproducing it into copies that then get put into the computers overseas also is not an infringement. And, you know, it's only about $500 million or a billion dollar decision there. Um, it actually may be a very big deal for the biotech industry because if you ship something that has to be reproduced overseas, um, that reproduction overseas won't be an act of infringement when, depending on how the claim is drafted. Um, so, again, it's, it's an important case. Um, it's a case that may go back to Congress for a fix if people feel that this is a problem. The concern was that this would move, otherwise would move, uh, you know, U.S. activity overseas to avoid infringement. And I think the biggest thing is the decisions that the case didn't address, which is whether or not software as an intangible thing or software as embodied in some type of physical media like a hard disk is itself a patentable invention. Do you think that the AT&T Microsoft decision would have turned out a little bit differently if it had not been Windows in its entirety but simply a portion of the code of Windows? Well, again, what was patented was a computer using the software itself. So what was shipped was Windows in its entirety. And, and again, they could have simply said the damages are excessive here. Um, it's also not clear if they had installed a particular golden master disk that had been physically shipped from the United States in one computer and then reproduced it, whether one could make the argument that there was one act of infringement, but lots and lots of damage that resulted from it. So I don't think that that was actually the real dispute. I think the dispute was really whether or not Congress intended to prohibit copying abroad. Matt uh, Krieger or Matt Buchanan, any further thoughts on the, on the Microsoft case? Uh, well, I mean, KSR is a groundbreaking, huge decision in patent law. I don't think Microsoft is, falls in that category. I mean, it may have been a big money case in this particular issue, but it ended up being a pretty technical interpretation of what the statute means when it says component and when it says supply a component. Um, and, and they just basically interpreted the statute in a one particular way. I and mean, Congress could easily change it if, if they don't agree. And, I don't, and although there may be certain um, software inventions or even potentially some biotech, I think that's pretty limited. I don't think it's going to have a real, a huge impact on, uh, on the law of patents, um, whereas I think ESR certainly will. Yeah, I, I agree. I think uh, I think the Microsoft case might might see some action in Congress if, if there's a, a need to clarify some things. Uh, that, of course, will take quite a bit of time. KSR has impact today. 
Well, we're nearing the end of our program, and we'd like to wrap up and get your final thoughts as well as your contact information for our listeners. So, Matthew Krieger, uh, to wrap up today's discussion and, and give us your contact information. Sure. So, um, I mean, I, I don't really have much to add. KSR case is going gonna, is gonna to have a huge impact. It'll take a while for us to see exactly what that impact will be. I think we're going to see a uh, big effect on, on certainly patent litigation. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what the patent office does when they have to change their, their manual of patent examination procedures to address it and how patent examiners, how free patent examiners will feel to sort of apply their own common sense to decide whether patents are obvious. My contact information is mkrieger, M-K-R-E-E-G-E-R, at mofo, M-O-F-O dot com, or you can call me at area code 415-268-7000. And Jay Matthew Buchanan. Uh, well, first, guys, thanks for having me. I think it was a great discussion uh, on the cases. Um, I would second Matt's thought. I think KSR is an, an enormous case that's uh, going to have significant impact for years to come. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how the Patent Office responds. It'll be interesting to see how uh, industry responds with their patent portfolios. The patent bar needs to respond as well and how we represent clients and, and things like that. Um, I'll be tracking the policy developments on the site. Case, uh, on promotetheprogress.com, and I also track the circuit case law on a site called fedcirc.us. Uh, I think I'm almost involved in as many web projects as you guys are, <laughs> but those, those, those are my two primary ones, and people can reach me off of those websites. Uh, my primary email is jmbesq at gmail.com, and my phone number at the firm is 800-235-5925. And Professor Josh Sarnoff. Again, thank you for inviting me on the program and to the um, other commentators who I wholly agree with their uh, summaries. Um, I think that in particular how the Patent Office and how the Bar chooses to implement um, the KSR decision really is going to be critical. I think the Federal Circuit has already, uh, through Judge Michelle, signaled that they view KSR as kind of a tweaking of their standard rather than as a repudiation uh, of their approach. And the Supreme Court even said that they weren't ruling on um, whether the n new way that the Federal Circuit is approaching things is inconsistent with the Supreme Court's earlier cases. So a lot will depend on what happens and if the Federal Circuit doesn't go along or if the PTO doesn't agree, we'll be back in the Supreme Court probably within five years. My contact information is jsarnoff at wcl.american.edu. Um, we also have a website for the Program on Information, Justice, and Intellectual Property at the Washington College of Law, www.pigip.org, P-I-J-I-P. And if anyone wants to speak by phone, it's 202-274-4165. Well, thank you to all three of our guests. I think you've helped us see some of the not-so-obvious uh, aspects of this decision. <laughs> and, Craig, uh, look forward to talking to you again next week. Well, Bob, it's obvious we'll be back next week, too. Ouch. <laughs> Cheers. Thanks again for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrogi. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. Lawyer to Lawyer has been sponsored by Law.com. Money, 
The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.